I remember I was reading this re- online like capsule review of Frozen 2 and someone was saying how like oh this is Disney strategy now to create sequels just to make money and everyone in the comments was like dude where have you been for the past 10 fucking years yeah <laughs> well one thing that I noticed about like uh, just clicking through Disney Plus was like how much stuff they'd had in their vault this whole time that people had totally for- forgotten about sequels to things that that had just like totally evaporated from people's memories you mean like Lion King one and a half yeah, but that that or even like way more obscure stuff. I can't I can't even like what I I can't think of it now because again it's like like we're talking like really like C and D list releases that they had turned into series for like right. their video releases, but um, people totally forgot about in between. Well, let me put it this way: Is Disney Plus worth it? Not for me. That's why I'm stealing my sister's login. So like even the the superhero stuff, the Star Wars stuff, National Geographic. Yeah, not your thing. Well, no, because like you know, I see the value for somebody who's really into everything Disney and all of those particular brands, and you know, you you know from your current watching habits that you're gonna want to watch the new Marvel shows that are coming out. Right, you're gonna want to watch all the Star Wars stuff, um, and you want it all in one place. Like, I definitely know that there's, uh, and obviously Disney's done the research to indicate that yeah, there's a huge market for that product out there that's not me though i'm not i'm not in that demographic probably the only show that i'm interested in on the whole platform is the mandalorian um Mm. and we're only three episodes into that so i don't even know if it's something that i would stick with why hasn't it sold you yet i mean i don't i don't find myself re-watching a lot of movies that are not on physical media no no i mean well i mean for like the mandalorian three episodes in why hasn't it hooked you in like oh well a lot of shows like, Stay tuned till after uh, till the main segment to uh <laughs> okay all right fine Welcome to episode 62 of the Extra Buttery Podcast. The show from two guys who love talking about movies and TV. This time on the show, we're going to be talking about the new Disney Plus show, The Mandalorian, as well as the sequel to The Shining, Doctor Sleep, and Charlie's Angels, the third reboot of that story. But before we get too far into it, my name is Robert Snow, coming to you from Toronto, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jason Chan, in Vancouver. What's up? We'll, we'll take off from where our cold open was leading us just then. Okay. Uh, with the, the Mandalorian. Is the world more peaceful since the revolution? It is a shame that your people suffered. But bounty hunting is a complicated profession. Would it be fair to say this is like the the house of cards for Disney Plus in the sense that it's the brand new show that is intended to be like, you can't get this anywhere else. It's the exclusive. Subscribe to this streaming service, one of many on the market, so that you can get access to this service. Uh, I think that would be a fair comparison. I think every streaming service does this. So yeah. Yeah. But The Mandalorian, I think, is definitely designed to get new subscribers on board. Yeah. Kind of like how Apple had that new show with Jennifer Aniston and Steve Carell. 
But here's my question. So there's a ton of TV out there. And basically, if you don't have the audience's attention within the first two episodes, you're done. Yeah. So my question is, like, what has or hasn't happened in the first three episodes that doesn't have you, like, on a hook? I think think it's actually, it reminds me of a problem that you had with Skyfall, of all things, the Bond movie. Okay. And that is, you know, whereas, you know, I... In the case of Skyfall, I actually loved the little uh, in-jokes and the references to previous um, movies in the Bond franchise. I loved the self-referential nature of it. For me, in that particular package, it worked. Uh-huh. But they seem to be doing something similar here in The Mandalorian, where it's full of, or at least the first three episodes I've seen so far, it's full of these touchstones to very familiar things that we've already seen in the live-action movies. And for one reason or another... At least to, so far, it's starting to feel a little bit like a greatest hits album where mm. you're, you instantly know what they're pointing out, but there's not enough. I don't know if it's not enough characterization or not enough um, new material mixed in with the old to kind of really hook you in. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, you know, we we open up with uh, a couple of planet environments that look very familiar we've got a a hoth like ice planet that's where the very first episode opens up mm-hmm. and then we're soon on a desert planet admittedly not tatooine uh specifically it's a, a but it's a similar desert style planet with jawas on it and a sand crawler and uh other recognizable species we also get a cantina scene pretty early on in the in the uh, the first episode um so there's there's definitely like there's lots of those kind of touch points and it feels like the you know they're trying to strike a balance between inserting the things that we recognize from the live action movies and new material to kind of like justify this whole new story arc and for me it's just like it's not bad it's not boring but i feel like i've seen certain parts of it before mhm so i mean does that include Baby Yoda? Is it even Baby Yoda? <laughs> uh, yeah. So like that, that was the, I, I, and I guess this is where, again, where they're trying to, they're trying to split off from the old material is they're trying to give us something that is kind of like the huge reveal at the end of the first episode to make us want to keep watching. And in this case, it's, we find out that the uh, very valuable, um, bounty that the Mandalorian, whose name has not been revealed yet on the show, um, this bounty hunter who's from the the same like race and people as Boba Fett and Jango Fett from uh, the movies, um, he's chasing this baby from the same species as Jedi Master Yoda. Ah, okay. So it's not Yoda. No, it's not Yoda because uh, it, in terms of like the chronology, we're actually dealing with a story set after the events of Return of the Jedi, the sixth movie. Okay. So it's before... Okay, but before The Force Awakens. Yeah, so we're, we're dealing with a situation where the Emperor has just recently been killed, uh, the New Republic has started up, um, there's a lot of lawlessness around the universe because the Empire is crumbling, there's still Imperial remnants, you still see like dusty-looking stormtroopers who have kind of become mercenaries uh, for various other powers, mm-hmm. and... Uh, things are just like very de- uh, destabilized. And of course, that would be a great uh, time to be a bounty hunter because there's uh, no real law and order in the universe. Do you think that because you're so already invested in the Star Wars universe because you've already known so much 
that there's very little to pull you in, that there's very little originality? Like, would you describe it as Star Wars fatigue? I, I wouldn't say Star Wars fatigue. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to why I wanted to start watching this was because I am a huge fan of the franchise and I've definitely spent a lot of time, probably more time than I'm willing to admit, uh, reading like online uh, Wikipedia style articles about characters going back to like, you know, referencing material that hasn't ever even been in the movies, like expanded universe stuff. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of context for what I'm seeing in the Mandalorian and certain things, you know, I'm picking up on references that other people might not maybe it's it's also got to do with the lead character because you've got a guy who you know he's got the iconic mandalorian style helmet but you can't see his face um most of his dialogue is just him kind of grunting or sighing because he's frustrated with his current mission um he gets a few one-liners here and there but there's not a whole lot to grab onto right now i'm sure they'll there'll be some sort of like big reveal later in the season when, you know, you get to see his, uh, his face or something. But uh, so far it's, again, we're, we're dealing with like a lot of setup and uh, it's, I, it, it's kind of that, that headspace that you were probably in with Watchmen uh, mm -hmm. in the last episode where you're not sure whether the setup is going to lead to a satisfying payoff. This goes back to the Scorsese thing about how maybe Marvel and all these blockbusters aren't really cinema because they're so tied to whatever they were before that they can't really reinvent themselves. So if you've seen one, it feels like you've seen them all. Yeah, yeah, there's a bit of that. And we've and Boba Fett and Jango Fett in the original movies, they didn't talk much either. I, I think Boba has like, what, five lines of dialogue in the original trilogy? Something, yeah. But I mean, his character being so mysterious became beloved by fans because I guess they could kind of you know, they could see any number of qualities in him because he was such a cipher. Um, but it's one thing for him to be, for Boba Fett to be like kind of a, a you know, a blink and you miss him kind of antagonist in mm -hmm. the fifth and sixth movies. And for and then for him to be, or a character like him to be the central character of a, of a TV show. Right. So, I mean, you know, I, it's, I still have faith that they will build up this guy's character. I mean, it would, they'd be foolish not to. But I, I don't know, you know, whether the other characters around him will also kind of flesh things out. Right. You know, babe, this baby Yoda creature, he doesn't talk very much. He does some cute stuff. Um, it's a baby. What do you want from it? Come on. Well, I mean, you know, he, he provides a bit of comic relief. You know, he can, <laughs> he can uh, you know, yank it's, something off of the inside of the guy's ship and kind of annoy him a bit. It's and, all I see these days. Baby Yoda memes. That's all yeah, I see. Yeah. Um, They're not doing like, that's why I'm not too afraid of like us talking about it here on the show because, you know, it's impossible to not have that spoiled for you. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the other thing I kind of want to mention is, so Star Wars, as the, as you may well know, has like a really big video game empire as well. Oh, yeah. And and so I was reading um, about Fallen Order, which is this new sort of action RPG um, Star Wars game that just recently came out. I'm actually looking forward to playing and, it, but uh, go on. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So... One of the reviews I read, actually quite a few, have mentioned about how it's also a game kind of like the way you mentioned The Mandalorian and that it throws a lot of things back to the movies. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the main character itself is a very bland, boring character. Right. Um, where they try to maybe pander to everyone and say, hey, look, this is your everyday hero. Anybody can be this guy. But then... At some point, they stop being interesting to you because they're so blank. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I think I read one take on, um, I think it was like, I can't remember, I think it was maybe io9, one of those blogs. And the the guy writing the article was essentially saying that um, based on a few 
decisions that the the Mandalorian makes in the third episode, including like almost giving up the baby Yoda creature. Um, mm-hmm. He was ready to hate the Mandalorian for that. And I'm like, wait, which show are we watching here? Because there shouldn't be <laughs> there shouldn't be any like um, doubt that the Mandalorian is going to be an anti-hero character. He's not going to be purely evil. He should be. He's right. Not, you know, yeah. he's not going to murder people in cold blood. He's not going to uh, really challenge the audience. I mean, he's going to be he'll he'll be gruff. He'll probably complain or, or you know, do stuff like that. He'll be more of a Han Solo than he will a Darth Vader, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I, and I guess that's to be expected. But if I didn't have that huge, that huge love of Star Wars and that kind of like thirst of like consuming a whole new Star Star Wars live action show, something that Lucasfilm had been working on even before they ever thought of uh, selling anything to Disney, they, at the time they couldn't do it because uh, like. It, the tech was well, wasn't really there in terms of like getting them the effects that they wanted to do on a TV budget. Right now, of course, they can they can do that, and they do get really great production design and um, practical effects and everything uh, for a lot cheaper, and it helps sell this live action story. Um, but yeah, I don't. I, for me, the jury's still out, and I, I I'm hoping that they can kind of like stick the landing on this first season because otherwise, I. You know, I wouldn't even consider getting Disney Plus for myself unless you're like a, a huge fan of, of the other brands. Yeah. Well, you heard him, Disney. So if you want Robert Snow's dollars, you got to do something oh, really yeah. interesting with yes. your Star Wars. So influential. <laughs> uh, yeah. They're shaking in their boots. Changing topics entirely. Uh, worst segue in the world. Uh, you want to talk about Charlie's Angels? It's a franchise, so. I yeah. mean, there's your connection there. <laughs> but yes, Charlie's Angels. Welcome to the Pounds and Agency. We exist because traditional law enforcement can't keep up. I don't like that, boy. You guys are like lady spies. Dane's former MI6. Oh, God. What did you do to Sven? I compressed his carotid and deoxygenated his brainstem. Well, that sounds painful. Don't worry. He's going to wake up. Unless he doesn't. Uh, I went to the movies the other day because it's been a while. I'm, I, was, I was still kind of exhausted from Biff. And I told Rob... I lied to Rob and said, hey, I'll go see Jojo Rabbit or Zombieland, um, something fresh. I ended up seeing Charlie's Angels. Yeah. Um, and I kind of saw it partly based on maybe not your recommendation, but your non-bashing review of Charlie's Angels. Yeah. And I only wrote like a quick little thing on Letterboxd. Exactly. So I got kind of curious because the, the audience score is pretty good. I think it was B+. Right. Um, but the critic score wasn't that great, which I kind of expected because... This does kind of feel like a niche movie, but I got to start off with why don't girl power movies make that much money? I don't know. I don't really get yeah. it. I, I like I'm not female, so I, I can't really say this with any authority, but a lot of girl power movies just don't make any money. And I, I was Googling stuff and it's not really the genre. I don't think it's really the franchise because the franchise was like very popular with men as well. because of Fair Fawcett and, and all the girls. Sure, yeah. But, I mean, why did it bomb so hard at the box office? It's not like it's a terrible film. No, and, and like, I, I maybe it's just one of those, like, 
chalk it up to one of those situations the you know hollywood's been trying for years to kind of crack the code of what's going to be successful and what's not and sometimes it seems like they have it down to a science but then other times there's just total head scratchers um, it's you know. not even a gender swap movie and the fact that you're not taking ghostbusters like an all-male team and turning into females yeah so you're- charlie's angels was all about always about three women who are like super spies so i don't really get it and I always, I always thought Elizabeth Banks had enough clout um, just based on the Pitch Perfect franchise and what she's done in the past to be like a real pull as a director. Um, and obviously, I know you love Case Do, and we get we can talk about her later. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I don't get it. I mean, I was slightly uncomfortable in the theater because probably because it was just me and like 10 middle-aged ladies. <laughs> there was no one else in my theater that was my age right so like i feel like it really failed to hit its target demographic and i don't understand why i just don't i think you actually hit you're hitting on something there uh actually because one thing that we are that, that this movie is struggling against is its brand or its franchise i mean you're dealing with an, yes it's old. yeah you're dealing with a remake of a classic show that very few people in the target demo the arguably like you know the target demo being like 18 to 35 year old men and women very few of them, you know, they might have heard the name Charlie's Angels if they know anything about classic TV. Um, but the actual, like, you know, the setup of who these women are, what the Charles Townsend agency that they work for, what what that that's about, you know, what kind of missions they do. Um, a- any of that will probably be lost on on people. And, you know, you'd be lucky if uh, if you did like a quiz of of people our age, our, our generation, like who is Farrah Fawcett's character on Charlie's Angels? Very few people will probably be able to tell you. They might not even know who Farrah Fawcett is, unfortunately. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you are you're trying to sell this newer concept. You're trying to update it, but um, how do you do that? Just is it is it enough to just cast recognizable current actors like Naomi Scott and, and Kristen Stewart uh, in these roles? Yeah, in the in the of the three ladies, though, I think Case Stew is like the only big pull. Yeah, like. Aladdin didn't do that well. Power Rangers didn't do that well. And those were two, like, I think really big Naomi Scott vehicles. I I think in those two movies, she was probably one of the better reasons to go watch those movies. Sure, but her career is just getting started. I mean, she doesn't have the kind of clout, you know, or or visibility quite yet. Yeah, she doesn't have, like, the huge franchise hit like Case 2 had with Twilight. Yeah. And uh, and then you've got like in terms of supporting players, you've got Elizabeth Banks in there. You know, she's directing. She's also writing and she appears in like a supporting role as a Bosley or a mm-hmm. lieutenant in the in the uh, uh, Charles Townsend agency. You've got uh, Jimon Hounsou, uh, Patrick Stewart also showing up. Um, Sam Clayfin, who plays like a villainous uh, tech billionaire type character. Um, lots of like familiar faces. But again, like Jonathan Tucker. Um, the return. Wait, who's Jonathan Tucker? He's the guy with the neck tattoos. Oh, that guy. Yeah, he he's always playing like neo-Nazi characters and he's getting uh <laughs> yeah, he's he's definitely got a creepy vibe about him. Yeah, so he was like a big um TV star for a while. I don't yeah. know if you remember this, but this would have been when we were in high school, I think. But the CW, I think it was, came out with this like new um sort of um Boondock Saint show called The Black Donnellys. Oh, okay, yeah. And he was the the main character. And I don't know if you've seen this, but have you ever seen a movie with um, Tommy Lee Jones and Charlie Theron called In the Valley of Elah? I've heard of it, but I didn't see it. Yeah. Okay, so it's an early, uh, mid-2000s film um, by Paul Haggis. Oh, okay. Um, so you kind of know what's going on, but uh, I swear this is way better than Crash, but 
Um, it's about basically the American military and um, something goes wrong and a soldier is murdered. And the soldier who's murdered is played by Jonathan Tucker. And it's actually quite an interesting movie. But anyway, well, I was going to say, too, though, like how much of this Charlie's Angels not doing well at the box office is because of McGee. <laughs> Are you saying like that the, one of the worst action filmmakers of the uh, early 2000s uh, left a bad taste in the, people's mouths? How about like in history, man? <laughs> like, I, I still believe that that movie was probably one of the top 20 movies I've ever seen. And I wonder if it was so bad that it kind of killed any interest in Charlie's Angels in this version. But yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the I don't think I'm not sure how much of an impact uh, either of the Cameron Diaz, uh, Lucy Liu, um, Charlie's Angels movies uh, actually had, other than people maybe knew they were they were a bit man, like manipulative or you know a bit leery. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they especially like I think they they sold one of the trailers like purely on the three gals doing this uh, sexy car wash sequence or something <laughs> that sticks in my in my mind for for reasons I won't disclose and the <laughs> I think the reasons are obvious yeah. Robert <laughs> but but yeah like that was the there was de- they were definitely leaning more into the male gaze uh version of Charlie's Angels in those initial remakes with McGee mm. you don't and think so I don't know maybe people remembered that this time around and they just kind of assumed that this was another male gaze kind of movie and not the girl power stuff that you know, arguably they, they would want to encourage. You didn't find there was a male gaze aspect to this version too? Oh, there is. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. But, but I feel like they, it's still pretty you know, strong. Yeah. I, I just, just in thinking about like the marketing between the two, like you think about the way they sold the McG ones versus this one where it felt like male gaze was, was definitely in there, but it was definitely more girl power uh on the right. front end um and i gotta say like the trailer for this charlie's angels was really poorly cut yeah there was that like it made you really think like it was a big action blockbuster but it's really not i don't know if you've guys seen Kristen stewart run but she does not run like tom cruise yeah yeah she's she's that's something she might want to work on well yeah she it just seems like she doesn't move very quickly across the screen yeah which brings us to the cast by the way I like Case Stu as much as the next person, but I don't really buy her as the funny action hero. There's something about her that, for me, slapstick doesn't work. And I've seen her on Saturday Night Live, and she's not... Maybe it's the skits as well, but I don't find her very funny, naturally. Yeah, this is a tricky one for me, too, because I did find her character funny in the scenes in this where she's trying to be funny. But mm-hmm. uh, but you're right, she doesn't fully sell it, and I think... I think part of that for her and if I've watched some of the other interviews that she's done in the run up to this movie and it seems like as an actor she's trying to push herself a little bit with this one and kind of yes you know she's trying to get a little bit more into action and doing her own stunts and cracking jokes and that more like action movie type uh, entertainment role which I mm-hmm. think she finds especially based on her like recent career working in like very European art house type movies. Um, it's a whole nother challenge. So, well, yeah, she's witty and she's funny in the sense that she's pretty witty. Yeah. But she's not funny in that sort of like physical sense, like not the way Lindsay Lohan was funny in the physical sense. Right. And, and it's not to say that she won't eventually get there, but she's kind of just starting out in this one. Yeah. It's just, I don't think it's just her. It's, I just don't think it's her thing. I actually thought Naomi Scott was kind of the best, but she kind of plays... Yeah, the kind of every girl. Fish out of water. 
you know, not so heroic, kind of, re- but really smart girl. I think she plays that role quite well. But the chemistry between the three, though, with, uh, was it Ella Belinska? Yeah, yeah, she was quite good, but something about those three, even despite the good chemistry, just doesn't make them quite believable as super spies. It feels like a, a movie that's not very serious, and I get it's not supposed to be, but you know how Fast and the Furious takes itself way too seriously? Yeah. I feel like Charlie's Angels could have done a li- with a little bit of that in this one. Yeah, because they... they- there's suggestions throughout the movie that they want to kind of take themselves a bit more seriously, especially like that sequence where they go to Istanbul and they're kind of exploring the Ella Belinska characters uh, past with uh, working for MI6 and Mm -hmm. there was a job that went wrong and there was a, a source who got burned and this kind of stuff. And there's some serious material in there, but it kind of dances around it without really telling us what exactly happened or why it's important. Yeah. And And they eventually spin it into kind of like, Belinska's character coming to a realization that she has to trust people and she has to kind of uh, learn to work as a part of a team but it falls a little bit flat it feels a little bit too one note and I yeah but don't you find every character in this film is a trope or a, a note of some kind yeah from I mean I I like the twist um with some of the characters at yeah. the end yeah um because every spy film needs a double agent right um but uh, the the Asian guy, the three ladies, Elizabeth Banks, um, Charles Xavier, <laughs> Charles Xavier, um, even the <laughs> yeah, I can't get that out of my head. Even the neck tattoo assassin, like it all just seems a little cliched. It's a fine film. I I just don't want a sequel. That's that's the only thing I don't want is a sequel. Yeah, I don't think this film deserves a sequel, and financially, I don't think it warrants a sequel. But you never know with Hollywood, and I just, please, just don't give me a sequel. That's all I ask. Yeah, I mean, if it had been better, I think I would have been there for a sequel. Um, You're only there for case, dude. Like, let's not lie. <laughs> but but there, I will say, there's a final note uh, for me, that the, uh, the one scene where it all really comes together and kind of shows the promise of what could have been, if, you know, it would have been nice if the rest of the movie had this kind of energy, was the, the kind of heist scene that happened in Hamburg uh, when they're trying to get those, like... In the lab? Yeah, they're trying to get those MacGuffin, like... Uh, all-powerful widget glowy things uh, from the bad guy and yeah, talk about like a weapon that really does not interest me huh just like a glowing Rubik's Cube exactly great um, and, and I mean it's clear that like it is intended as a MacGuffin like the movie is not yes. as supposed to be about that one thing so it's it's almost deliberately vague and stupid mm-hmm. but the way they set up that they use the location really well they they shot in the new Hamburg uh, opera house uh, there and they used like the uh, the kind of the staircases and the circuitous kind of nature of the hallways there and they, they just made really good use of, of the space mm-hmm. and I felt like if the rest of the movie could have kind of kept up that energy and those kind of misdirections um, it might have been better overall. I don't disagree with you. Um, the one thing that it kind of glossed over is that they make a big deal of Naomi Scott's character um, you know inadvertently killing people. Oh yeah. Yeah they touch on that a mo- and for she a moment. Ju- they just kind of like gloss over it by the end because I'm pretty sure by the end they've killed, you know, at least more than a couple people. Yeah, they well at least I think Ella Belinska, she she like tosses a guy and he gets impaled through the chest and Yeah. Um, um yeah. some guy gets ground up at a rock quarry. This the security guard that clearly has a crush on Naomi Scott's character yeah. ends up 
basically dying and we don't even know if he does. And I'm just like, poor dude, man. He was just doing his job. And I guess this is where maybe some of the psychotherapists who are in the audience will uh, will cringe a bit because there's this character who works at one of the, 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 the towns and agencies safe houses who's billed as this kind of like, you know, uh, medical doctor slash like who health guru type guy. And he's like, oh, my God, I wanted to punch him so bad. And he says in one kind of throwaway line, he's like, oh, and I'm also a registered psychotherapist. So it's kind of like, oh, well, did you kill people and you're suffering with like post-traumatic stress disorder? That's OK. We'll just delete that because I, yeah, you know, he's one of those magic. like naturopathic doctors who gives you like a weird green kale juice and says it's good for you and help your bowel movement. <laughs> one of those people, you know, and they're just so appreciative um, of him. Like they're like, oh, you're just a lifesaver. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. I think maybe that, like, I don't think they were taking that character super seriously. I think Elizabeth, no, of course uh, Elizabeth not. Banks knows that, you know, there's some parody happening there. Um, of course. But yeah, it's still, it, it, there's still a bit of a disconnect between, like, what the angels do on their missions and the kind of what's put forward as, like, how they're going to deal with it. Right. And I think Elizabeth Banks does that really well because even in Pitch Perfect, she lampoons, like, um, acapella groups and like uh, drama club kids and all that. And she does a little, right. that a little bit here with like the action genre and the girl power thing. But it's again, like it's really not that bad. It's a solid three out of five. Yeah. I mean, if you really want to waste time and hang out with some middle aged woman, <laughs> this <laughs> is the perfect time to do so. It's not an interesting film. It'll it'll move along at a, at a decent clip where you're not bored at any real point. Um, but if you're looking for something that's fresh, that's original, granted, this is a remake, so maybe, you know, it's not so easy to do, but it won't, it's a very forgettable film, but it is miles, miles, miles better than the Drew Barrymore, Lucy Liu, Cameron Diaz version. Yes. Um, yeah. Hands down. Like, there's no argument. Yeah. At all and I would there. love to see Elizabeth Banks continue to uh, write and direct and, you know, just be a, a badass in Hollywood. I think that's it's even if this one is a bit of a, a swing and a miss for her, like she clearly has a lot of talent. And I, I imagine she could she could take on any kind of story. Right. The one thing I will final thought is that case do with that short haircut, that pixie cut. Yep, She pulls it off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like not many. Um, characters can really pull that off because they all tend to be kind of like I don't know if you've ever seen the transporter but they all tend to be like an eastern European femme fatale kind of <laughs> vibe to them right like right. The, 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 the pixie cut but it's like slicked back and it's very tight but Kristen Stewart makes it work that's what all that European art house stuff was for was to pull off the pixie cut <laughs> yeah exactly um, but Dr. Sleep the world's a hungry place a dark place. Hi there. I only met two or three people like us. They died. When I was a kid, I bumped into these things. I don't know about magic. I... I always called it The Shining. Yeah, so I, you know, you talk to the Robert of like two years ago, and I probably wouldn't have paid much attention to Doctor Sleep. Oh, why not? I don't know. I've, I feel like this this year in particular, both with like movies like The Lighthouse and um, Midsommar, um, before that, like The Witch, I've been trying to like, I don't know, expand my horizons a little bit and like, you know, try to seek out. You're going to dark, dark corners of your life now. Oh, no. This is like... 
this is the time where you question your existence, <laughs> your well-being. I, I think this is like a proxy for your like existential crisis. It or could be deep yeah. psychological trauma that's been reawakened somehow. <laughs> but please continue. Okay. Well, on that uplifting note, yeah. No, I I've been uh, I've been trying to like at least seek out like a couple more horror movies per year that you know that <laughs> uh, are at least doing interesting things or quasi fresh things with the genre that are not kind of indulging in typical like slasher movie cliche type stuff. And you're way more brave than me. Yeah. So, um, and, but I think actually in the case of like, uh, Dr. Sleep, this is actually the sequel to the shining. Mm -hmm. And I've already mentioned having seen this movie to a couple of people and they were kind of like, wait, there was a sequel to The Shining? Um, <laughs> yeah, this doesn't get much buzz. Yeah, but it, but it is actually, you know, Stephen King wrote the, he wrote the original book, The Shining, and then he made, he wrote the sequel, I think in 2013. And for one reason or another, the movie, uh, you know, uh, maybe because Stephen King is so prolific and he's just writing books all the time, uh, it doesn't seem like Dr. Sleep, the book, made a huge splash. I mean, it probably did for his fans, but whatever. Right. <laughs> whatever. Whatever, Stephen King fans. <laughs> but essentially, like, you know, he he picks up in the, in the book, he picks up the story of Danny Torrance, who's the, uh, the young boy in the original Shining. And he fast forwards like 40 years in the future. Danny Torrance is an adult uh man who's kind of uh, he's haunted by his experience at the overlook hotel uh, which we read about in the book and saw in kubrick's movie and at the point that we meet up with him for the first time he's an alcoholic he's uh you know no job basically homeless but he's has to come to terms with like his psychic abilities the abilities that revealed themselves to him when he was a kid at the overlook hotel and his ability to speak to dead people or people who are about to die and he gets drawn back into this world, both uh, part, partly because he he makes a real effort to try to clean himself up and, you know, uh, quit drinking, join AA, uh, get a job in a small town, you know, just sort of get his mind right. And at the same time, he's uh, he's fighting off a lot of the the ghosts that have been following him around since the uh, since he was a kid. And just when he thinks that he's kind of on an even keel and things are going well, he encounters uh, other people who have abilities similar to his who are locked in a kind of like, not so much a war, but a kind of a rivalry. Uh, and um, there's very different ideas in different factions about like how to use the powers that they have. Mm -hmm. And this brings him in as kind of like a, he's our, even though he's got these kind of superpowers, he's our look into this strange world and King's in the book, it seems, you know, he's kind of expanded the universe of the shining and he, he shows that it's kind of like this, this phenomenon that, you know, exists all over the world. It wasn't just in that one place in the overlook hotel. And now they've made a movie of it with Ewan McGregor. Mm. And, and I actually quite liked it. Um, it's, you know, the, there's probably, there's a huge like task ahead of the director, Mike Flanagan here. Um, he essentially had to follow up one of the most famous movies of all time by right. one of the, the best directors of all time. And not only that, but work in concert with the writer of the original novel who famously or infamously did not like the first adaptation of uh, set in this world. Yeah. So, okay. And so kind of bring it back. Why didn't he like it? 
I, I don't quite know the story. I don't know the story too well myself, but uh, apparently it's it's definitely it's worth looking into. But essentially, it has to do with like um, it has to do with accuracy to the novel. Right. Okay. Kubrick. Kubrick is, of course, you know, he was famously fastidious. You know, obsessed with with getting things exactly according to his vision, and he often, you know, he got a better film from those purposes. But I think he um, he did deviate from King's original novel quite a bit in ways that King really didn't like. And um, so this, so I guess when King was brought in as a producer on the adaptation of Dr. Sleep, he had like, he could work with the director very closely and kind of like getting back to, to what King wanted to see. And not that like they had to keep him happy to like mm-hmm. get the movie made or anything. I'm sure they would have, <laughs> they would have proceeded without him if he was being difficult. But um, in this movie, Dr. Sleep, they have to, they, they kind of end up quoting Kubrick's Shining by recasting actors who look like versions of, you know, Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson from Kubrick's movie and dressing them in the same clothes, recreating some of the scenes, uh, recreating a lot of the sets, doing like a very good job to my eye of of doing all those things, but then building out the story beyond that. And they kind of were following Ewan McGregor's character. And yet for the first like chunk of the movie, um, you know, there's very little like supernatural stuff happening because we're just kind of uh, following Ewan McGregor, kind of, you know, Danny Torrance cleaning himself up and building a new life for himself. And at first when I saw the runtime of this movie, which is two and a half hours, I was like, whoa, how, how is this movie going to be two and a half hours long? Is there enough story here? Turns out there is because between kind of getting invested in uh, Danny Torrance fixing up his life and then all these new characters with psychic abilities and their sort of dramas, um, it it actually does sustain itself over that uh, period of time, right? Well, so what does Doctor Sleep mean, or what does it stand for? So, uh, what happens with Danny Torrance is that um, when he he kind of he runs away from his life as an alcoholic, and he finds himself in this small town in New Hampshire, and he kind of he gets a couple of part time jobs. One is like the the driver of this little like uh, tourist attraction in the town square. And also as the uh, orderly at a nursing home uh, who works at the night shift. Right. And after working the night shift at this nursing home for a while, he realizes that there's a cat who lives at the nursing home who is, seems to be able to uh, predict when a resident of the, of the home is going to die. And so he gets into the... Uh, Danny Torrance gets into the habit of going to the room that this cat identifies and sitting next to the the resident and kind of like being with them as they pass away, mm-hmm. and the residents slowly dub him Doctor Sleep because oh, he's okay. He's kind of like he, he's doing like the bedside manner of a doctor, but he's kind of guiding them into that like last sleep. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, so it's a it's a rather kind of like it's a poignant um, nickname that he gets. And I mean, not to go so far as to call him like a superhero because, you know, he clearly does have supernatural powers, but it's almost like an alias for him. Mm -hmm. Um, Jump scares? There's a few. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and the the original Kubrick movie definitely had a handful as well, Um, especially when they're recreating some of the scenes from the original movie. Uh, Some of the ghosts in that, especially the the kind of uh, withered old crone woman who lives in the bathroom of room 237 in the, the overlook is that rebecca ferguson no so she plays a one of these like psychic characters who's new to the 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 the, the sequel portion of it but uh there's this like 
withered old woman who who's a ghost who uh you know she pops up a few times and definitely like yeah it sends a shiver up your spine every time she turns up because uh, <laughs> uh and it was the same way in the in the original movie as well um mm-hmm. but rebecca ferguson plays a character called uh rose the hat who she's a, like a a seemingly immortal maybe not quite immortal maybe like really long-lived um psychic person who is able to absorb the life force of people uh and she's used this and she and her like uh the rest of her faction they're able to uh capture people and inflict them with pain torture them and as they're dying they're able to absorb their life force and stay you know unnaturally young and she, uh rebecca ferguson she does a she's pretty solid here as a villain i mean uh you you know uh, she kind of gives her all to it and you end up kind of hating her character by the end of it. So definitely effective. I definitely like Rebecca Ferguson when she's not when she's playing like a uh, like an antihero or or someone who. Yeah. Whose allegiances are very unclear. Kind of like in the Mission Impossible movies. Right. Yeah. And you would like her in this. I mean, she or you would like her performance. I mean, you, you wouldn't like her character because her character is pretty bad. But <laughs> well, maybe I do. I like bad characters. I like evil characters. I think good characters are boring. Give me all the bad characters. Right. What I don't like is gore and jump scares. And- yeah. Well, there's not too much gore. You know, that's that's a good thing about this. Like, I think some people have the the impression that the original Shining is gory. But other than like only because of the red fountain. Yeah. Like, like the, not the, not the, the blood, red fountain, but the red um, the blood coming out of the elevator. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. There's that. And there's like there are some scenes of like people who've been killed with an axe. Um, but Ugh. you don't you don't get a huge amount of like you don't get like disembowelments or, you know, any of that kind of right. stuff. Um so yeah, there's there's a bit of violence in it. There's violence in this new one too, uh, kind of on that same level. There's probably the worst part is when uh, is a trap scene where they kind of they convince Rebecca Ferguson's character to come and try to capture um, one of Ewan McGregor's new friends, mm-hmm. and uh, she like reverses things on Rose the Hat and traps her and like hurts her hand in a kind of graphic way. But um, yeah, other than that, it's it's nothing that's gonna really turn your stomach. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's I, I appreciate that. You know, they're not uh, they're not being too cheap with uh, with those kind of sight uh, scares. Well, I mean, this is a good point to actually look ahead now because now we're entering December, Thanksgiving weekend first, and then December. Yes. But this is when like a lot of the Oscar bait comes in. So I think with all these movies, Charlie's Angels, Doctor Sleep. If it doesn't blow you away, it's probably going to get lost in the awards conversation coming up. And based on what you've said and what I've seen, um, it doesn't look like this is going to get a lot of attention. No. And I mean, you know, I'm not sure if they'll if they're even looking to sequelize Dr. Sleep, for example, Uh, the you know, I would still recommend it to people, anyone who's kind of like looking for, you know, some more Stephen King goodness, if you like his stuff, if you like other adaptations of his stuff. Uh, but you're right. You know, the the time the time that they released this, there is going to be a lot of like, certainly for families, you know, you got the new Frozen sequel out. So, um, you know, a lot of that market is eaten up. Yeah. Frozen 2 had the biggest auditoriums when I went to see a movie. Oh, of course. Um, unsurprisingly. <laughs> and it's a lot of families taking their kids. Yeah, I saw little girls dressed up as Elsa, and and I thought that was really cute. And of course, me being the only um, young man there, um, went to see Charlie's Angels. But instead, it ended up being a theater full of middle aged women. Great. <laughs> <laughs> but I did feel a little self conscious 
going to see Charlie's Angels on my own. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's a society thing or if it's a personal thing. It just felt kind of weird. But I don't know. I don't. Did you have the same experience or no? You're probably better at this than me. Uh, well, well, I know what you're talking about. You know, uh, going to see certain movies on your own is, uh, yeah, it can leave you with a weird sensation. Um, yeah, I, I would say like certainly like uh, going to see a rom com or something that's intended as a romance that would be a little bit weird. <laughs> uh, yeah, that yeah, that's one of them for um, sure. Charlie's Angels, Charlie's Angels, less so because it's a it's clearly an action movie, um, right? But I am in my case. I saw Charlie's Angels with my with my mom and my sister. Um, oh, okay. so so uh, what did they think of it? They, they have the female perspective that we don't have. Yeah, no, they they liked it a lot. They um they they uh, kind of echoed what we were saying about how okay. it um you know they could see the the cliches and some of the the stuff that wasn't so fresh. Um, but they they appreciated it. They appreciated the the kind of entertainment value for what it was and right. uh, liked the performances. So I think in on those scores, the movie does succeed. Um, it's just a question of like kind of making the pitch and selling the people who would have a similar experience on actually going to check it out, you know, especially if the, the name Charlie's angels doesn't really, you know, trigger any nostalgia or anything for them. Right. Right. So yeah, but then coming up for the rest of December, we've got, I mean, not only theatrical releases, but there's some pretty prestige stuff kind of hitting streaming services too. So, you know, the, the Irishman marriage story, things like that are rolling out on, on Netflix. Um, actually, did you, um, Speaking of Netflix and whatnot, did you hear about the story about how Netflix is going to operate a theater in New York now? Oh, yeah. And and show their movies on the big screen. And this is like a great workaround to the Academy about how um, films have to be shown on a theatrical release to be considered for awards. Because we want to win awards, but we're also not a movie studio because we're an online streaming service. So are we like exempt from the rules as they currently are? Can we run our own theater and show only our own content? Is that cool? All right. So I think this is a, a good time to end the episode. Next week, I'll have... Um, a Watchmen update for everyone. Oh yeah, will it be? Will it have wrapped its first season by that point? Uh, no, because it runs until mid December, I believe. Oh, okay. But yeah. but we're getting to the point where like they they need to start revealing more plot points right. rather than throwing character curveballs all the time. Okay, so we'll get into um, that. Yeah, um, so it, they need to get into the conspiracy. On becoming a god in Central Florida, I'm really close to the end. Um, I have some thoughts about it, but we'll share with you next time. Um, what do you have on the slate, Rob? Are you going to go see any movies in particular soon? Yeah, so we're probably next week we'll be able to talk about Knives Out, uh, the new Ooh, Ryan Johnson, yes. Okay, yes. Uh, kind of noir-ish mystery that I've been looking forward to for some time. Um, and then for other movies, we've, well, we won't be able to talk about Star Wars just yet. We'll save that for the last episode of the year because uh, it's got a kind of a late December release. Right. Um, but uh, well, I can't maybe we'll also. That, though. um and maybe we'll also talk about uh, marriage story if we get a chance because i had a really good time with that when i saw it at tiff uh that'll be rolling out for mo for netflix users uh on the the streaming side Um, have we not talked about marriage story not in any kind of great detail i don't think and oh okay yeah and plus like you know it it hasn't been available for anyone to watch (laughs) you plebs yeah (laughs) come to come to film festivals so you can see this stuff when it's really do (laughs) yes exactly and you get to be in front of everyone 
Uh, anyway, that, that would have been another stray thought that I would have gone on for 10 minutes, but... <laughs> but head on over to the website. You know the drill. Uh, we're always writing longer form versions of the stuff that we talk about here on the show uh, for you there. So that's uh, uh, kinetoscope.ca. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. You can follow either the, the general account for the website, uh, kinetoscope.ca, or you can follow our personal handles at J Robert Snow or at Jason Chen 16. But until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time. 